Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Good morning. Today we're going to be in John 4, 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months and then the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This is the word of God. Father, the God who is always at work, whose Son is always at work, we thank you that where Jesus is, wherever Jesus is, there is always hope, there is always healing, there is always help, there is always an effort for wholeness. We thank you, fathers. We gather this morning around your word that Jesus is here, that Jesus is ready to take his word and apply it to our hearts and lives. Help us in these moments, I pray, to find him here, to hear him speaking by your word through the work and ministry of your Holy Spirit. Meet us, Lord Jesus. Meet us here. Speak to us by your word. Speak to us by your spirit. We're listening for you. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I'm leaving you uh, in uh, the end of this week, heading off to uh, my annual uh, sabbatical. And because I am, I want to leave you with something important to think about, something important to think about during the summer, something, something important to think about beyond the summer. Now, I'm going to leave you in good hands, Pastor Seth, Pastor Adam, Dr. Gary Chapman, Dr. David Horner will be ministering the word to you in my absence, but I want to give you something to consider. I want to give you something to consider about your life, uh, your life in particular. Now, I've been very impressed over this past week, uh, as many of you have reached out to me and, and you've said essentially to me, after looking at the story of the, of the woman at the well, I realized I have some women at the well in my life, some men at the well in my life, and the Word of God last Sunday helped me to begin to look at them differently. I'm grateful for that because I'm convinced that men and women are at a lot of wells and they are in our lives and they desperately need us. They are everywhere and they need us to speak to them about the one who brings living water. We have a special responsibility uh, for them to them, but Today I want to go back to the story known as the story of the woman at the well, the story of her encounter with Jesus, and I want to examine another story that we find there. It is the story of the disciples at the well and their encounter with Jesus. Indeed, the whole passage from John 4, uh, 1 through verse 42 could rightly be called, I think I would rename it the story of Jesus at the well. Because you see the woman encountering Jesus, and then you see the disciples encountering Jesus, and then you see the Samaritans from the village of Sychar encountering Jesus. So really, the name of this story is the story of Jesus at the well. Not so much the woman, not just the disciples, and not just the Samaritans. They all encountered him there. We find him in, this, in these three stories that, that are part of this larger story. We find him here to be the great investor in unlikely people. Indeed, the gospels show us that everywhere that Jesus goes, he invests in people by challenging them, by challenging them to think, by offering them not just an upgrade to their lives, but a real change in their lives. And wherever he goes, people come away better. They come away stronger. They come away different from what they had been before their encounter with him. And I, I trust, too, that in our encounter with him through the word this morning, we will come away better and stronger, and uh, I pray changed. I trust that uh, these things will happen as we look at his specific investment in his own followers, these disciples at the well. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus decides to leave hostile Judea and to go back to a friendlier Galilee. And though there are two routes he can take, he takes one, he takes the one that is shorter, he takes the one that is more dangerous, the one through the Samaritan territory. Now, most Jews would have taken the longer route, most Jews would have avoided the stress, most Jews would have avoided the hostility, Jesus doesn't, and he doesn't for a reason. He has an appointment with this woman 
that she knows nothing about. But he also has an appointment with his disciples they know nothing about. And he has an appointment with a whole crowd of Samaritans that they know nothing about. Jesus had, John says, to go through Samaria. There are conversations he needs to have, things that he needs to say, truths that he needs to point out. Particularly now today to his disciples. You see, he, he wants to invest in them because he, he wants to give them something more. Something they need. Something they lack. And in this story, we find Jesus investing in them, giving them something to live for. Something to look for. Something to long for. He makes an investment in their lives and he gives them something they don't have. Something to live for, something to look for, something to long for. He gives them what you and I need if we're going to really live in this life, those same three things. Now where the woman at the well is the consummate picture of every person who is hard to love, the disciples here, are the consummate picture of all true believers who need salvation for eternal life, to be sure, but need something more. They, they need direction in this life. And though they can be disappointing and they can be irritating and even frustrating to Jesus at times, even though they can be slow to take his directions for life, he still goes to the trouble. Just like he went to the trouble with the woman at the well, he, he goes to the trouble with the disciples. The trouble of investing himself in them in spite of them. And there is then another reason why this story is one of our greatest treasures. This story of Jesus at the well. is because we see how it is Jesus will not only invest himself in those who are lost, but he will invest himself radically in those who are found too. And we see something of his heart, not just for those who are lost. We see something of his heart for those who are found. He, we see something of his heart for believers and his investment in them here. In this part of the story, we, we see how and why God sees and treats those who go from being thirsty people at the failing wells of life to being followers of his son. And so I want us to make our way through this next story in the story, looking at what the disciples encounter with Jesus at the well means for them and how the heart of Jesus is for them and how his heart explains what he does. I want you to see how and why, because of who he is, Jesus deliberately invests in them as he gives them something to live for, something to look for, something to long for, and I want to leave you with something to think about. First, I want you to notice with me in verses 27 to 34, how Jesus gives his disciples something to live for. And he does this by remaking their priorities. They have priorities. They are living with priorities. You're living with priorities right here, right now. And Jesus, as, as he has invested in this woman at the well, and as he turns to invest in his disciples, he wants to give them something worth living for, and he starts with this issue, this matter of priorities. 
And I want you to see how, and I want you to see why with me in verses 27 to 34. John reports here the Jesus conversation with a woman ends and how it ends. Just as Jesus announces himself to be the Christ, the disciples come from the village and the woman goes back to the village, back to the people who ignore her and hate her to tell them that a stranger at the well has told her everything she ever did and she suspects, in fact, she believes he must be the Christ. Many of the villagers, John tells us, almost as an aside, hear this news, look at verse 30, and begin flowing out of the village to see this stranger who made such a marked difference in such a marked woman, in such a broken woman. And this outflow of people, it, it frames actually everything we're about to see together in the word. So the disciples find Jesus where they'd left him. Not as they expected him to be. No, 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 no. They're greatly surprised. They're astonished. They're even shocked. In fact, I would say that in the original language, the idea is they were scandalized. It's like, oh my, somebody saw me years ago at Starbucks with my oldest daughter. And they looked at me. They didn't know who she was, but they knew who I was and they were going... I was so uncomfortable, but I really didn't know what to do. <laughs> hey, wait, wait. <laughs> Let me introduce you to my daughter. I don't know, I don't know, but they're shocked. They're shocked. They're scandalized because Jesus is talking with a woman, especially a Samaritan woman, something as we've said that's unusual for a Jew. Jesus' actions don't fit with their expectations, don't fit with their plans. And the shock is registered, the scripture says, look at verse 27, in two unspoken questions, what do you seek? This is what they wanted to ask him, what do you seek? And why are you talking with this woman? Now, these are very good questions, actually. They're questions about purpose. They're questions about motive. What do you seek? Why are you talking with this woman? They want to know first what Jesus is actually after, and secondly, why he's after whatever it is he's after. We don't know what you're after. It's not looking good, what, what it is that you're after. Afraid to ask him these questions, they seem to assume, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, that they're giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt. And perhaps the reason he's talking to her is because he's hungry. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe Jesus just broke down and he was hungry. He wasn't hangry. Any of you ever been hangry? Okay, it happens on vacation all the time, but he's not hangry, he's hungry, and they think, well, maybe because he's hungry, he's talking to her, and he say, hey, have you got any, you know, anything extra to eat? I, and so they urge him to eat, verse 31, but Jesus has yet another surprise for them. Look at what he says. He says, they say, hey, Rabbi, eat, and he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, this probably doesn't go over well. They've gone to a lot of trouble they, and some risk to go into a Samaritan village to get the lunch he sent them to get. And so they wonder just how he got food to eat and no doubt wonder even more what he was seeking from the woman if it wasn't food. If you've already got food, why were you talking to this woman? Just then, Jesus does what he had to do with Nicodemus, what he had to do with the woman, 
And what he will have to do with these disciples again and again and again, he uses the physical to explain the spiritual. And in the same way that the woman didn't understand fully what Jesus was talking about when he talked about living water, the disciples don't realize what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of food. The disciples reason that if Jesus has food, it's because someone else brought it to him. But look at verse 34. This is key passage here. In verse 34, Jesus says to them, here is my food. I've got food you don't know anything about, but here is my food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, all through this story, I want to pause and say this to you. I don't want you to hear Jesus with an angry voice. I, I don't want you to hear him irritated. He's not angry. He's not irritated he, at all, at all, at all, at all. He's making a gentle but very strategic investment in the lives of these men. And he's, and he's basically explaining to them. He's teaching them. He's pointing out truth to them. But he's not angry and he's not irritated. He knows that the woman at the well can only understand so much at a time. And he, he knows, too, that these disciples, they can only understand so much at a time. But he was willing to work with a woman, and he's willing to work with, this, with these disciples and loved ones. I want to say to you, he's willing to work with you. He's willing to work with you. He takes you right where you are in your walk with him, and he's willing to work with you. The, the real issue comes down, of course, is are these disciples willing to work with him? And are you willing to work with him? And am I willing to work with him? And, I, and are we willing to be worked on by him? Now, His voice is tender, his voice is instructive all at the same time, but he wants them to think, he wants them to understand, he wants them ultimately to uh, compare uh, their, their real food for life, what drives and motivates them with his own food. Here is my real food, Jesus says, it is my Father's will, it is my Father's work. Now this affirmation is actually critical for the story. Jesus says that his real food, the things that genuinely, watch this, don't miss this, the things that genuinely sustain him, the things that genuinely satisfy him in life, what, what is for him the very best of food is an absolute submission to his father. It is doing his father's will and accomplishing or finishing the father's work. Now, in the Gospel of John, the Father's will and the Father's work always refer to the Father's healing and saving desire for broken people living in a world gone wrong. God's will is that people might have life. God's will is that people might have eternal life with him. God's work is to see to it that they have the chance to have that kind of life. These are the things that Jesus lives by. These are the things that Jesus lives in. These are the things that Jesus lives for Daily and ultimately, this food, this will and the work are what he seeks when he talks with the Samaritan woman. You say, well, what do you seek? I'm, I'm seeking the Father's will. I'm seeking the, the Father's work. Why do you talk with her? Because I'm, I want her to know the Father's will and I want her to become part of the Father's work. This is why I'm talking to this woman. You see, Jesus lives submitting to and advancing the Father's work all at the same time. The Father's will, the Father's work are his life's priority, his life's mission. And because the Father's priority and mission are people, the, uh, Jesus' priority and mission are people. And so he 
watches for them. He meets them where they are. He speaks to them. He cares for them ultimately. He acts for them on a cross and in a resurrection. Near the end of his life, he's able to pray and say in John 17, Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me. At the end of his life on the cross, he could finally say it is finished. Everything I lived for and I am now dying for is done. I wanted your will. I wanted to see your work accomplished. Jesus, like all of us, quite frankly, is a is a person on a mission. I said earlier, every single one of us have priorities. We do. We're living by those priorities right here, right now. They mark us. They mark everything we do, every decision we make, every word we speak, every action we take. They mark us. There are priorities that mark us. They direct us. They guide us. Our priorities, whatever they are, that is their function. Following those priorities actually becomes then our life's mission. Jesus, like us, is a person on mission. The difference is that his life mission was not his. It, it, and it wasn't a combination. Jesus never, you never find Jesus on this combination mission. A, a, a mission that is his, what he, his priorities are somehow blended with the priorities of his father. No, 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 no. What we find in the New Testament is that Jesus' mission was finally and fully his father's. In fact, this is what marks Jesus as radically different from all who came before him and all who came after him. And this is the truth that is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus came to do the Father's will and always did no less. And that is when we say, when we talk about the gospel, he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. The reason he lived the life we should have lived is that Jesus always had his priorities informed and marked and filled and directed by the priorities of his father. His will was his father's will. He saw his life's work as the father's work and he never failed. When Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, it was because they made the decision to live their lives saying, not your will, but mine be done. Jesus, when he faced the cross, perhaps the greatest challenge to his priorities, made that famous declaration and said, I am not going to change my priorities. I will not deviate from the plan. I will not move away from the strategy that you have given me. He said plainly, bluntly, boldly, and without hesitation, not my will, but yours be done. Your priorities are mine. Your will, my will. Your work, my work. I am a man on a mission. It's not my mission. And 
No, the way to say it is everything that pleased the Father. Don't miss this. Everything that pleased the Father, it pleased Jesus to do. Everything that pleased the Father, it pleased Jesus to do. He never did what he liked, except that he liked doing what the Father wanted to be done. Later in John 6, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, still later in John 8, he says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Why, Jesus? Because he says, for I always do the things, watch this, that are pleasing to him. Jesus' greatest pleasure was pleasing his father. So this submitting and obeying, this prioritizing what the Father wants and doing the Father's work to the finish, these were not things that Jesus did just now and again when it was comfortable, when it made sense, when it was cheap and easy to do. He, he does these things as a matter of course. The Father's will and work are his very food for life, the very essence of his being, the only ultimate uh, moving, sustaining, and satisfying power of his life. He literally hungers to do the Father's will. He literally hungers to do the Father's work. He craves its accomplishment. And this attitude of Jesus shows what it means to say that man cannot live or know real life by way of physical bread alone, but real life is known and lived by obedience to every word that comes from the mouth of God. This attitude is how the Father's will and work are done and how it is that hearts find sustenance and deep satisfaction. Now, why all of this matters is simply here. Jesus' desire is that those who are his should actually be as he is, with the same priorities, actually moving and motivating them. What Jesus is doing here is revealing his life's priorities. He's answering the question of what he's seeking, not only in his conversation with a woman, but in his life with them and his life in total. But he's also pointing to the why of his priorities, the, the will he follows and obeys is the will of his Father. The work he seeks to complete is the work of his Father. And what he's saying is this, what comes first, what stays first, and what matters most, no matter what happens, to me is this doing the Father's will and advancing the Father's work. So what I want you to see with me is that Jesus is doing more than just answering the disciples' original unasked questions. In a very real way, he's putting them back to them. What are you seeking? And why? What do you seek? And why do you do what you do? He's challenging them to think about their answers. And as well he should, when you think about it. To be a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus is by definition to follow him, is it not? To, to live as he lives, am I right? To do what he does, to do what he does, live as he lives and do what he does for the same reasons that he does them. That is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So when they wonder, what do you seek and why are you speaking to her? And they're scandalized by what they see. 
they're unwittingly asking the perfect questions, the questions that every true disciple asks of the one they follow, if only so that they might follow him well. These are the questions disciples ask so that they might be after what their teacher is after and might pursue it for the same reasons he pursues it. And so Jesus, for his part, seizes this moment to teach and test the disciples at the point of their own life's priorities. And what he's saying is basically this. You can't really follow him if you don't prioritize as he prioritizes. You can't really follow him if your priorities aren't his priorities. It's a sad thing, I think, but true. That it's rare to see believers who are taken up with Jesus. Consumed with Jesus. I read in an article in The Atlantic the other day, somebody calculated how they came to this. I have no idea. But they estimate that since COVID, Americans have watched 15 million years worth of streaming. Now, I don't know how they measured that, but that's a ton of streaming. <laughs> We're taken up with a lot of things. Well, one of the great tragedies, I think, a very sad thing, is how few followers of Jesus are really taken up with him, are taken up with the things that are dear to the heart of the Father. It's sad, I think, how rare it is to see believers who make the material and the physical secondary and make the spiritual primary in their lives. Many separate the spiritual from the physical and, and relegate the spiritual to what is auxiliary and the material to what is necessary. In other words, what I'm saying is they make the physical first and they make the spiritual second. And many of us who are followers of Jesus wonder why we are so very hungry and thirsty. And how we can become so easily discouraged and distracted. The Apostle Paul was able to say, I count all things as lost, but for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, he had given up everything and reordered his priorities around Christ. How many of us have done that, literally? How many of us, I wonder, have looked at the way we spend our time and asked how our time might be spent, oriented around the priorities of Jesus, doing his will, seeing his work finished? How many of us have looked at our bank accounts and asked how we're spending our money and whether the way we're spending our money actually accomplishes the will of God and helps complete his work. For some of us, this is our point of greatest struggle and surrender. 
God's work doesn't advance because in, in so many ways, we, our money isn't oriented around his will and his work. There are aspects of his work that don't get done because our time is not oriented around his will and his work. It's oriented around someone else's will and someone else's work. How many of us have given up all things and, and actually reordered our priorities around Christ rather than reordering Christ around our priorities? I guess a, 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 another way to say it is, are we fitting Jesus in to our lives or are we fitting our lives into Jesus? Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, I, I'm not right this very minute actually speaking to you. You, you have priorities your life is your own, quite frankly, and you can order your priorities any way you want to. So please hear me say that. If you have not come to a personal living faith in Jesus, you can, you can order your life any way you want to. You can do your will, and you can select your work, and you can pour your life into those things. Now, like the woman at the well, you're going to discover that the water you keep drawing out keeps running out. I, I, I have to say that. I do have to say that. But then let me go back to believers and say, believer, let me just speak frankly with you. When you came to faith in Christ, you said that everything you have and are belonged to him. And basically when you said, uh, Jesus is my Lord, and when you say that, you're saying, I'm going to fit my life into you. I'm not going to ask you to fit into my life. This is something I want you to think about. This whole matter of priorities. Who decides? What you do. How you do it. Where you do it. Who decides? Whether Christ fits or your life fits, who decides? Your priorities and mine, whatever they, they may be, are what you and I use to answer life's most decisive questions. What comes first in my life? What stays first in my life, really? What matters most to me, no matter what happens to me, what matters most? What is that, what, what, are, what are those things that I will not compromise on? I will not back down on. I will stand for. I will even fight for. Just step back. Is it Christ or comfort? Is it Christ or control? 
Is Christ fitting into your life, your will and your work, or, or are the Father's will and work what your life fits into? Do you live like the crucial things are God's, or do you live like this world's things are crucial? His will, His work, or something else? Oh, loved ones, I want to say to you, Jesus gives us something more to live for. And there are times when believers have to go back to the woman at the well and learn all over again the lessons Jesus was teaching her. That won't satisfy you. That won't satisfy you. That won't satisfy you. Having this, doing that is, is not going to satisfy you. Good things, in the end, are not going to satisfy you. You can draw water from them, yes, and you can actually be successful at drawing lots of water out, but in the end, they're going to leave you thirsty. There, there is one food, one food that, that really nurtures, sustains, and satisfies. And it is doing the will of God and advancing His work. Second, I want you to notice with me how Jesus gives his disciples something to look for. Look at verses 35 and 36. He redirects their perspectives. He, he not only reorders their priorities, but he redirects their perspectives. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. See what? See that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Jesus shifts from remaking the disciples' priorities to redirecting their view, their perspective. Again, I want to say to you, don't hear Jesus using an angry voice. Hear him now urgently pleading with them, look, look, will you, look, lift up your eyes, see. He uses a harvest illustration, and it's meant to link up with what is happening right before their eyes. He contrasts natural crops with spiritual crops to help them understand that like the harvest that gave them the reward and the joy of a meal they've brought back with them, there's a spiritual harvest that also has a reward and a joy that comes with it as well. In the natural harvest, four months are typically required between the time the sower sows and the reaper reaps. But in this spiritual harvest that is being demonstrated right before their eyes, there aren't four months required. Jesus has sown into the life of this unwanted and unloved woman. She, in turn, is sowing what she received from Jesus into the lives of others. And now they're coming to Jesus with the prospect and the possibility of finding the Messiah and the life and the living water he's promising. The result, Jesus says, just look up, look up. And here are all these people, people all these Samaritans in their white clothes streaming out of their village, coming toward Jesus. And Jesus says, look, can you see? Look up, look up, look up, look up. They're coming. Do you see? It's the harvest. Look at 
The fields are white. The fruit is ready to be harvested. The fruit is now ready for harvesting. Jesus first wants these disciples at the well to align their priorities with his, with the Father's mission. But now he tells us what the Father's mission is. It's healing and saving people. He knows that when they do this, they'll better understand. They'll better be able to see what he sees and understand what he understands. But all of these people streaming out of the village with their white clothing, coming to where Jesus is, or what his father's heart longs for. Or what his father's heart loves. Or what moves him. You can almost hear Jesus say, look, do you see? I, I see the village. I, I see people coming. I see people ready to listen. I, I see people ready to respond, willing to repent, willing to believe. I see a harvest opportunity coming. Do you see what I see? Can you see what I see? I see the fruit that's so valuable to my father, the spiritual fruit that needs to be gathered here and now, the fruit that lasts for eternity. Do you see what I see? Now, no doubt, the people coming to them are among the very same people the disciples had just come from. So there's a comparison here that we might miss. The disciples had seen them as a necessary source of food for a much-needed lunch. They had gone in mass to Sychar because it was dangerous for Jews to go into Samaritan villages. So you can imagine. They're just going there, and what they're seeing, a source of food and enemies. A source of food and enemies. They were doing what they had to do because they had to eat. And they were keeping their eyes open, looking at these very same people saying, enemy, 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 impossible, 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 impossible. Lost and you deserve it, 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 lost and you deserve it. All you all deserve, all you all lost and you all deserve it. I just want to get in, get my lunch, and get out. I just want to get in, get my lunch, and get out. The disciples had seen these people as problems and threats. Jesus sees them as possibilities and treasures. And so he says, verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Now, there's something else here. Jesus is calling on them to see what he sees, to perceive people as possibilities and treasures. But all of this is really just preparation for sowing and reaping, and sowing and reaping require work, work that is not easy. Indeed, sowing and reaping in this spiritual harvest are hard work, and they come with great discouragement. Why? Because the hearts of people can be hard and unbelieving, the unsaved are blind and dead to their lost condition and danger. We probably don't realize really how hard human hearts can be until we love and treasure them enough to sow the gospel into their lives and then pray to see them saved. And yet at the same time, Jesus says the word of God, when sown faithfully, is capable of producing an instant harvest. The word spoken in our passage is already bringing a great crowd of unlikely Samaritan converts to Jesus. 
The one who sows never knows when the seed will bear fruit. We don't ever know. Sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it takes shorter. You never do know. You never do know. uh, This room was absolutely filled with a funeral service this week of a young woman who took her life. We sow the gospel. And I don't know what will become of that except one man gave his life to Christ. And when the mother heard, she wept because she finds great joy in seeing God's will done and his work advanced. She wept. And all of this matters, loved ones, because there's no sowing where there's no, there's no reaping where there's no sowing, but there's no sowing where there's no seeing. You don't sow when you can't see. If it's enemy, 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 source of food, enemy, source of food, enemy, lost, impossible, lost, impossible, guess how much we share the gospel? When we see people as problems and impossibilities, we don't share the gospel. But when we see them as God sees them, as eternal possibilities and as treasures, we stop. with this selfishness with the gospel. And we start actually sharing it. You see, perhaps one of the greatest obstacles to the gospel of Jesus working in people's lives is the inability we have to look up and see the lost as lost, to see them as the Father's treasures. May I say to you, they are treasures. And may I say to you, they aren't treasures that have been lost by the Father as if he had somehow been careless. He didn't lose them. Instead, they are treasures lost to the Father. They were his, but they went their own way, saying, not your will, but mine be done. But they are the Father's treasures nonetheless. The truth is, this is why Paul calls believers the riches of his glorious inheritance in Ephesians 1. Believer, you are his treasure. You are his treasure found. Rejoice in that truth. I want to encourage you this summer and beyond. Rejoice in that truth. You are his. You are his treasure. He treasures you. He loves you. He he loves the idea that you are his. And he, he loves the idea that one day you will be with him in his presence. Find strength in that truth. Live out of that truth. But I want to say to you this morning, don't forget this. You are his treasure found. And every other person on the planet is equally his treasure. But they are lost to him. 
And sadly, they can stay lost to him if he stays lost to them because we don't see them as he sees them as lost treasures and if we don't believe that the fields in which they live are now ripe for harvest and that in those fields, people are ready to be gathered for eternity. I want you to think about this. What do you see when you see the world? Things are going crazy. People are going crazy. Crazy has gone crazy. You can quote me on that. Crazy has gone crazy. Crazy people are God's treasures. I just got to speak this into your life. I need for you to listen to me. Crazy people are God's treasures too. Some of you have been acting a little crazy. <laughs> At least that's what I've heard. <laughs> what do you see when you see the world? What do you see when you see the people in it? Do you see treasures with potential in Christ? Do you see people worth investing your life in? Or are they trouble to be avoided? Trouble to be ignored? Jesus says to you, lift up your eyes. What? Do you see? Finally, notice with me that Jesus gives them something to long for in verses 36 to 42. He effectively redefines their win in life, and this is important. How do you know when you're winning? Who or what defines success for you is really the issue here. And so here, just before the Samaritan crowd arrives, Jesus tells the disciples what they can expect when their priorities are his priorities, when his perspective becomes their perspective, and when the Father's will and work are being done, two things can be expected. Faithfulness in priorities and faithfulness in perceptions will produce its own prize or win in the form of two things, Jesus says, wages and joy. Do you see those? Wages and joy. Do you see those? Wages and joy. In fact, I want to say that he pays his wages in joy. <laughs> He pays his wages in joy. In a joy unspeakable and full of glory, the Apostle Paul says. A joy that has no match. A joy that has no measure. A joy that triumphs even when life is hard. He pays his wages in joy. All that you hope Myrtle Beach is going to bring you this summer... It's going to fail you. I'm telling you, it's going to fail you because Myrtle Beach comes with sand that will get in your sandals, that will get in your SUV and mess everything up. It will get in the ears of your children, the noses of your children, and the eyes of your children, and there will be no joy. Somebody say amen. But the joy that Jesus gives exceeds the joy of Myrtle Beach. But some of us have forgotten that and we work Jesus in around Myrtle Beach instead of working Myrtle Beach around Jesus. You say, Pastor, that's not fair. You make us laugh and then you 
really hit us between the eyes. That's my job. That's my job. Some of you will spend more money at Myrtle Beach than you will ever give to Center Grove Church and its ministries this year. Whoa, now he's gotten serious. (laughs) Honey, we're looking for a new church starting now. You can go find a new church. You still got the same Jesus. Say, I don't like you. Well, I love you. And I'm not going to stop loving you enough to tell you the truth. But I want you to see with me how Jesus redefines their win in life. There's a joy that comes when faithfulness to the Father produces fruitfulness for the Father. Why? Because pleasing the Father is our greatest possible pleasure and because one soul saved outlasts every kingdom ever established in this world's history. Just one. One soul saved lasts forever. Everything else we might give our lives to? Temporary. Temporary, 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 temporary. There can be no better way to spend your life here than bringing others to Jesus. My grandfather, who was a pastor, my father was a pastor. I'm a pastor, at least until the next business meeting. But my grandfather used to say, Steve, the only thing you can take with you when God calls you home are people. Who are you going to take home? This is his will. This is his his work. People are his mission. This is the perspective of Jesus. And this is the prize that Jesus holds before you. It is a joy unspeakable and full of glory, the joy that comes when seeing his work advance and his will done. The greatest pleasure in all the world is pleasing this Father. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. So here's what I want you to think about this summer and beyond. First, for believers, think about this. What are you doing with your life, your time? To carry out the Father's will and advance His work. What are you doing? Are you fitting Jesus into your life or are you fitting your life into Jesus? What are you doing with your money? 
Are you using your money to advance his kingdom? Or are you using your money to advance yours? The other day, the Lord convicted my heart and said, I've always tithed and got, got done above the tithe. But the Lord convicted me and said, you're not giving enough. I had to go back online, go to Truist, and adjust my weekly gift because I, I needed to make it bigger. Because I want to see the kingdom of God advance. I want to see his work go forward. And quite frankly, I want to know the joy of seeing my father smile like he's going to in just a few minutes when we baptize three and then we'll baptize again in second service. There's joy for him in that. There's joy for me in that. I hope there's joy in you for that. But it comes by people investing their time and their resources, their very lives to advance the kingdom. It's what it takes. It's what it takes. Teachers and youth workers Greeters and car parkers, people who are willing to go to the rescue mission and serve. People who turn off Netflix. Did you hear how I said that? Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Watch out. I'm going on sabbatical. I may not have a job when I get back, but who are willing to turn that off and turn their lives on to Jesus. He said, who are you talking to? I'm talking to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I am speaking directly to you. Check your calendar. Check your checkbook. And ask yourselves, who's fitting in to what? Whose will, whose work are actually being done? from your life. Joy comes in the Father's smile. Now, let me say this and I'm done. Today, There are people in this room who do not have a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you very specifically, here is what he offers to you. He offers to you a life worth living. He offers to you a perspective worth having. He offers to you a prize worth gaining he offers to you the forgiveness of sin he offers to you the cleansing of your heart and a heart made new he offers to you an eternity spent with him and he offers to you here now today a life that is abundant and full still hard sometimes but a life that is abundant and full a life that has and knows a joy, unspeakable and full of glory. He came, he 
lived that life you and I have never lived so that he might die the death we deserve to die. So that by faith, those who will receive him and receive what he's done and give themselves completely to him might be saved, forgiven, given a brand new life. This is what he offers. And he is here and he is present and he is now working. And he's calling you. And he's saying to you, come. He's saying to you, come. And I invite you to come. We're going to stand together all across the room. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.